name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I'm so depressed. I can't get any dates, a 300-pound man said to his pastor. I've tried everything to lose weight. Well, I think I can help, said the pastor. Next morning, he said, you'd be dressed and ready to go at 8 a.m. Next morning, he opens the door. A beautiful woman in a sleek exercise suit is standing there. And she says, the pastor sent me. If you can catch me, you can date me. And she took off running. Well, he huffed and puffed after her and, of course, didn't catch her. That routine went on every day for the next five months. The man lost 115 pounds, felt confident that he would catch the woman the next day. That morning, he whipped open the front door and found a 300-pound woman there in her jogging suit waiting for him. And she said, the pastor said to tell you that if I can catch you, I can have you. (laughs) This morning, I want to talk about motivation. I want to talk about motivation. I don't want to talk about the motivation to lose weight or to get a date. I want to talk about the motivation that we need to follow Jesus. I want to talk about the motivation to be his apprentice and his disciple. Last week, I told you that uh, I suggested that Paul paints this big framework Uh, for discipleship rather than just specifics, a framework for his own discipleship and a framework for him discipling others. And, uh, and I said that if we have any part of our framework that is, that is lacking or that's damaged, then, then we're going to be less than the disciple that we can be. And all of these areas are interconnected. They're all, they're all tied together. I think we'll see as the weeks go on. I suggested six areas of uh, categories for this framework. They were motivation, obedience, truth, lifestyle, discipline, and reliance. And each week I'm going to take every a different one of these categories and my hope is here's my hope listen my hope is that at the end of today and at the end of every Sunday's teaching time we'll just say God here's the one thing that I want to do to grow in that category here's the one thing I want to do to change to make myself a, a, a better disciple a stronger apprentice uh, of the Lord Billy, uh, Billy Rickman last, or this week actually, he said to me, if I'm hearing you correct, what you're saying is you're not talking about discipling other people, you're talking about me being a disciple. And Billy was exactly right. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you being a disciple. I'm talking about me being a disciple. I, I do believe that everything I'm going to say has something to do with helping me disciple others. Because if I really do, if you end up buying into this idea that there's these categories of discipleship that we need to invest in, If you end up buying into that and thinking that's right, then I'm going to also give you a framework by which you can invest in others, which, by the way, I think that's kind of what Paul was talking about in the Colossians passage that we're using as a bedrock for for these for these talks. So this morning, I want to talk about our motivation. And I want to ask you this question rhetorically, of course, but I want to ask you this question. Why do you follow Jesus? 
Why do you personally follow Jesus? And my hope is that at the end of this day, you'll, you'll find the necessary motive for following him, and, and you'll affirm it. If, if that's not your motivation, that you'll change motivations today for why you follow Jesus, if indeed you follow him. Or if this is already your motivation, my goal, my hope is that God's going to re-energize that. He's going to work in our hearts and just, I don't know, just pump us up in this motivation. This motivation will just really transform us this morning. Now, there are several motives for following Jesus that, that, that I believe are not good, maybe not even legit. There, there are a number of reasons why we can follow Jesus, and uh, not all of these motivations are going to sustain you till the end, I would suggest. And, and furthermore, I'd even say that some of these motivations are just, they're not godly motivations. They're not the motivation that God has for you. So let me name two of them I think are really predominant in our, maybe in our culture, in the world as at large, right? Here's the two motivations. I suggest you are wrong motivations for following Jesus. Here's the first one, fear. I think fear is not a proper motivation for you to follow Jesus, for you to be afraid. Now, I know some of you are already in your hearts disagreeing with me, and that's, that's quite all right. I may be wrong, but uh, I really do believe that fear is an inappropriate motivation for you to follow Jesus. So let me explain that a little bit. Some people follow Jesus because they're afraid if they don't follow him, he's going to hurt them in this life. He's going to do something to reprimand them, to discipline if they don't follow him. And so they follow him out of a fear that God's going to hurt them in this life. And if you don't believe that, let's just go to the story in John chapter 9 where the disciples see a blind guy. Remember this story? Remember where their first question to Jesus is? Hey Jesus, who sinned, his parents or him, that he's born blind? In other words, the idea or the thought behind that is, hey, God's going to blind you if you're not following him, if you're, if you're sinning against him. Of course, Jesus says neither, neither one of those. I, I don't think that following Jesus for some sort of retribution in this life is, is a proper reason for following him. A second reason that people follow him out of fear is not what he's going to do to me in this life, but what he's going to do to me in the life to come. Hey, I follow him because if not, he's going to consciously torment me in hell. This has been an often used motivation throughout, throughout the centuries for the church. Uh, I guess the premier example of that would be Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I mean, the whole motivation there was to follow God because he was going to torture you and torment you forever and forever and forever. Prior to uh, the past 50, 60 years or so, I'd say, maybe a little bit longer than that, Christians believed that the physical torment of hell was going to be that God would resurrect you in the resurrection, give you an immortal body that could not die, and then he would proceed to burn you alive every single day for the rest of all eternity. You, literally, folks, listen, that's what we as the church taught. We taught that God would torture you by burning you alive forever and ever and ever. Now, about 60 years ago or so, we began to kind of water down that view of eternal conscious torment in my mind. We began to water it down by saying, no, God's not going to burn you alive. Instead, he's going to cause you an emotionally eternal conscious torment. And that emotional torment is going to be that God is going to isolate you in darkness by yourself. And there you will sit forever and ever and ever, void of the, void of the presence of God, void of the presence of any other living creature or being. And, and God will torment you. Uh, 
that way. And so some people follow Jesus. I'm not commenting on the truthfulness of any of that. I'm simply saying I do not believe those are, pro- I don't believe that's a proper motivation for you and me to follow Jesus because we're afraid of God's torture in the, in the future. Now again, you may disagree with me, but I want to tell you again, I don't think that that fear motivation will overcome desires in your heart, the things that are there as God has created you. I don't think they'll overcome those desires. And besides this, if I could, again, I guess I'm, I'm defining this or going into it more than I care to, but, but I'm not aware of one time in the book of Acts where, where the apostles used fear as a motivator to get people to follow Jesus. Now, you, you, you prove me wrong after, the, after this talk. You come and tell me, say, you're wrong, Jimmy. Here's where the disciples used fear to motivate people to follow Jesus. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that they used exactly the opposite of fear to motivate people. But we'll hold that. Here's the second wrong motivation that I think, and that's transactionalism. And I know you're thinking, what in the world is that? It's actually really a word. I'm not making up a word. Transactionalism is the idea, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And a lot of people follow Jesus because that's what they expect. God, I'm going to follow you. Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Now I expect you to reward me with good stuff for what I've done for you. Because I'm following you, now you reward me. And when it comes to the rewards that people think that God should give them because they follow Jesus, I would say they fall in three categories. One would be material possessions. God, you should bless me with money and things in this life. And I tell you what, the whole prosperity movement, I believe, is built on this motivation of you, God, I'm going to follow you and you give me. I was with some brothers this week and it just, and, and, and I know this is not what they meant, but that's what it sounded like to me. It was all about following Jesus because he's going to give me these things. If it's not material possessions, it's, it's emotional possessions. He's going to give me the relationship that I want. He's going to give me friends like I want. He's going to give me a lover or a wife, a husband like I want if I follow him. And the third one I would say is we, we, this transactional idea of following Jesus is because he'll give me power. He'll give me power. He'll give me positions of grace and honor in the world. And you go back to the disciples, right? Remember James and John? Now, whether they did it or whether their mother did it on their own, I don't know. But you remember, she goes to Jesus, and what does she ask for? Remember? Position one, position two, right? That's what I want for my kids. I think people follow Jesus so that God will give them position and power. Maybe now, maybe in the kingdom to come. And and I hate to think that that could be our motivation this morning. You could be here this morning and you're motivated to follow Jesus because of fear. Because if you don't follow him, he's going to get you in this life or he's going to get you in the life to come. Or if you don't follow him, he's not going to give you good things. And so you need to follow him so he'll give you good things. And so you follow him for capital, connection, control. But what happens when he doesn't do those things? What happened when he doesn't give you what you think you ought to get for following him? Or, or, or what, what if something else becomes more fearful to you? Then, you? then you fall away. I'll never forget Ray Comfort. The first time I heard Ray Comfort's illustration of the airplane, and I'm not going to go into great detail, but he talks about how, you know, he likens life to an airplane ride. And he says, and, and he says we say to people, hey, get on the airplane and put on this parachute. And this is what we say, it'll make, your, it'll make your ride more enjoyable. 
And it's going to make your life better, right? But you get on an airplane with a parachute, and they're big and they're bulky, and you're sitting in your seat, and you know how small airplane seats are, and it's absolutely uncomfortable. You can't see, you can't lean back. You have hardly no room for your food and your coffee, and eventually you take the parachute off because you say, this isn't improving my flight. Well, really, it has nothing to do with uh, improving your flight. That's my point. We, we, these, these motives are wrong. Last week, I, I mentioned to you the, the parable of the four soils. Remember the parable of the four soils? And let me mention it again. You know, the, the first soil is so hard. The soil is the heart. The heart's so hard, the word of God doesn't penetrate it at all. The last one, the, the soil is the heart is good. And the seed penetrates it. But there's two in the middle where the seed penetrates it and it grows, but then it's killed off. It's killed off by the hot sun or it's killed off by the thorns that choke out the life of it, right? And, and I'm suggesting to you that those two middle soils, you see, when, when it gets hot following Jesus, and like uh, Micah says, and, 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 and the wicked flourish and the godly are not flourishing, and it gets so hot and you have to pay for it with your life. We had one of our worker friends write us this week. I don't know if you get their email or not, but they wrote us about a person that's begun to follow Jesus. And, and this person was afraid. She's in a Muslim world. And she's afraid to let people know about her faith. What she's, af she's afraid of being killed. She's afraid of being tortured or tormented or lose. lose and you know what? The, the, when, the, when it gets so hot here, people say, well, look, I'm not going to worry about my fear about tomorrow or my fear of what Jesus may do to me. I'm, I'm going to worry about my fear now. And they fall away from Jesus because they're afraid. So you see, a, a fear motive can cause you to lose your motivation to follow Jesus. And the other soil was the being choked out by the thorns, right? And so if, if your goal or your motive for following Jesus is what he's going to give you, and you just happen to have everything in life you want, why do you follow Jesus? Because you've got everything you want, right? He's get, you got everything. And so you don't follow Jesus anymore. It chokes out your desire to follow Jesus. Are you following me? You guys don't look like you're following me. Are you following me this morning? All right. So what should our motivation be for following Jesus? What should it be? Uh, hopefully you're already kind of tracking and you're thinking, what, what should our motivation be if it's not fear and it's not what he's going to do for me? What, what is my motivation? Well, I think Paul gives it to us in that Colossians passage. So let's go back to it, verse 27 and verse 28, because here's what I think it is. To them God chose to make known, Paul writing to the Colossian church, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And here's the mystery. And here's the motivation, by the way, I think, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Now, I think Paul gives us a motivation there that's twofold. And it's an inter interconnected motivation. Now, it's, it's not that these are totally disconnected from one another. They're not. Okay, they're, they're very, very connected but yet slightly different. Here it is. It's the hope of glory, Jesus in you. That's the motivation for following Jesus. Now, I'm going to show you the, this twofold motivation. I'm going to break it down for us. All right, here's the first part. This is what I'm calling the first part, although it's second in the text. Here's what I believe is our first motivation for following Jesus. It is our lasting, empowering, life-changing motivation to follow Jesus must be Jesus himself must be the person of Jesus. It's Jesus in us. 
I tell you this morning, I believe I'm absolutely correct. No motive will endure. No motive will make us more fervent of a disciple of Jesus than coming to know Jesus, the person, Jesus, the God-man, Jesus. He is our motivation to follow him. What I'm saying is, in case you're not, and I don't mean to repeat myself too much, if Jesus is a means to an end for you, your motive's not going to last Jesus has to be your motivation, all right? He has to be your reason for discipleship. If not, everything, I believe your motive is in jeopardy, and your following Jesus will be in jeopardy. We've read throughout the ages of men whose lives just absolutely inspired and just challenged people to follow them. And I don't know if these men are actually existed or as they've been portrayed in, in history, but men like King Arthur or Robin Hood or uh, William Wallace, right? I, I know some of those guys were, de- William Wallace definitely existed. Whether they were exactly how they've been portrayed in movies, I don't know. But there was something about their lives that just motivated people to follow them and to give their all to follow them. More modern folks might be people like modern, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. or Nelson Mandela. Those are men who have inspired others by their lives to follow them. The motivation to follow Jesus has got to be Jesus the person. He's the reason why we follow him. Now let me use some biblical, biblical examples of this. I, several came to mind as I sat at my desk this week. Here's one of them. John chapter 6. People have followed Jesus. You know why they're following Jesus? For what he gives to them, the food. Remember that? He fed them. And so they want him because he, he, you know, you say, well, what's the big deal about food? We just go down to the restaurant or food line or whatever. But you need to, you need to put yourself back in a day where food wasn't like it is today. And to have someone be able to feed you all the time was <laughs> incredible. So they're following Jesus for the food, for what he can do for them. And when Jesus, when they come to him, he says, I'm not feeding you again. I fed you. I am the bread of life. I'm not going to feed you again. And you remember, he says, eat me, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they, they walk away. And then he turns to his disciples. Remember this, the, the 12? And he says, guys, will you leave me too? What do they say? He said, no, we're not leaving you. Because there's no one like you. There's no one who has the words of eternal life like you. We're not leaving you. You see, they'd been so impacted by the life of Jesus, even though they don't understand by the person of Jesus, even though they don't understand, they're not leaving. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, one of my favorite passages. Verse 13. They've accused Paul of being crazy. Off his rocker. Here's what he says. If we're out of our mind, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Jesus compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Here's what Paul says. Jesus' love has so impacted us. It, it, is so, it is so impactful. It's compelling us, those of us that know him. It's compelling us to live for him. I tell you, beloved, when you get to know Jesus, it compels you. When you get to know his love, it compels you to follow him. If, you, if you're not following him, it's because you don't know him. And if you've got the wrong motivation for following you, you're probably not going to continue. So you need to get to know Jesus. He was a man of great authority. For those of you who didn't know this, he was a man of great authority. People who listened to him said, man, nobody speaks like you. 
It was said of him that he was a kind man, that he, even a bruised reed he wouldn't break. I mean, I think the reason, I think that little metaphor is trying to say that there's a tenderness about Jesus that he's just not harsh and wanting to break everybody around him. He was a man who loved the downtrodden. He was not a respecter of persons. It didn't matter whether you were poor or rich. It didn't matter whether you were Jew or Gentile. It didn't matter whether you were sinner or one of the self-proclaimed non-sinners. Jesus just loved everyone. And, and people who followed him and got to know him, they valued him for who he was. And that became the motivation for by which they followed after him. They treasured him as a person. Jesus tells these two stories in Matthew 13. You know them well. They elucidate this motivation. Listen to what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and, it, and he bought it. Both stories, both stories make the same point, everyone. They make the same point that the kingdom of God is so valuable. And I'm going to equate, listen, and you, you, you correct me if you think I'm wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. The kingdom of God came because the king was here. And so when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about himself. The kingdom of God is really about King Jesus being our king. So I think he's talking about himself. And he's saying they found this king who is of great value. So much so that they were willing to get rid of everything to follow him. They, gave rid of, they got rid of everything to follow him so they could purchase the field or the pearl so they could have him because he became more value than all of their possessions and all of their relationships and any other, any desire for power that they had. He was saying they, they understood that this was, this was so much greater of a thing and it motivated them. And the story of the, of the buried treasure in the field, notice this, that it says, then in his joy, he goes and sells everything. And they recognize that Jesus is the source of our greatest joy. Our motivation, it must be Jesus. One more, one more. And this one may be self-serving, although the last one may have been self-serving for Jesus and that he told them both. But he said, if you want to follow me, you have to love me more than parents, your kids, your siblings, yep, even your own life. That's my paraphrase, okay? But, that, but that's what he says. I, I have to be your greatest treasure. I have to be your greatest delight. And if I am personally that, you'll be motivated to follow me always. And nothing, nothing is going to, nothing will derail that. Now, two questions came to mind as I'm thinking about this. Here's the first question. How do I know if Jesus is my greatest joy? How do I know that he's my greatest treasure? How do I know that I'm being motivated by him, the person, and not because of, of what he gives me or, or that sort of thing? Well, I, I would say two things. Number one, objectively look at your life. Look at your bank account. Look at your calendar. Look at your verbiage. Look at what, how, what you talk about, where, where your, what your pastimes are. I mean, I think those are going to reveal to us our greatest treasure. And to be honest with you, I think most of us don't do that. We don't do it. Your impulses examine yourself. I think this is what I'm saying to you. Most of us don't do this. And you know what? We're scared, maybe. Maybe we're scared, or, or we, we, we don't know what we're looking for, but we don't objectively look at our lives and say, really, Jesus, are you, do I love you for who you are, for the person you are? 
rather than what you're doing for me? And then the second thing I said was analyze, I thought of analyze sin in your life if you want to know you treasure Jesus above everything else. What sinful thing are you willing to choose over faithfulness to Jesus? What sinfulness, what sinful thing are you willing to choose over Jesus? Whatever it is, that's your highest joy. That's your greatest love. Listen, guys, if you're connected to pornography all the time, that, that's your highest joy. That's your greatest treasure. Could be a relationship. Could be an emotional thing like material security, what things like money gives you. It could be uh, a material thing. One of our many possessions could be what we treasure more than Jesus. And, and it just, and it really is the focus of our life. Could be a control thing. And the control thing I'd say would be this, not willing to give up control of my life to Jesus and let him control it. So it could be that, right? So that's how you evaluate whether Jesus had dinner. Here's my second question that came to mind was, okay, well, if I'm going to talk to you this morning, I'm going to be, and I'm going to be helpful to us. Here's, here's the second question I thought was, how do I make Jesus my greatest joy, my greatest treasure? I mean, isn't that what you're asking? If you're tracking with me at all, you should be asking that question. How do I make Jesus the person, my greatest treasure? How do I make him the motivation for my life? How do I do it, Jimmy? I don't know how. Well, I don't have a list for you. I really, you know, I, I said, Lord, I don't want to give him a list. It's not a list. Here it is. You get to know Jesus. We say, well, how do I do that? Well, what we know about Jesus is written to us and for us in the Gospels. And it's also written for us in the letters that Paul and those apostles wrote afterwards. So I would say if you really want to know Jesus, then spend some time reading about him. But spend some time reading his words. And here's another thing I'd encourage you to do to get to know him is talk to him. I mean, just talk to him. Carve out some time, every part of your day, and just talk to him. And it doesn't have to be. It can be, probably should be. You're all alone, by yourself. Nobody's bothering you. And you're just talking to God. But it can't be while you're walking. It can't be while you're driving. I mean, just talk to Jesus and get to know him. And, 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 and read about his life through others. I, there's just all kinds. We see him in action. And you know what? If you get to know him, he will become your greatest joy. He will become your treasure. He will become what you love the most. He, the person. And you will prove. You, you can't help it. But you will prove that Jesus is your greatest joy and your greatest treasure. No matter how much, no matter how hard it is, and no matter how much competes with him, you'll prove it when you get to know him. Now, I said there was two interconnected motives for following Jesus. That was the first one. It's Jesus the person. Not what he can do for you, just like you get to know him. And his persona is so large and so incredible and so loving and so kind and you're so strong. You just, you can't help it. You're going to fall in love with him and you're going to follow after him if you get to know him. But here's the second interconnected motive and it's this. Our second lasting, empowering, life-changing motivation to follow Jesus is the hope of glory that he himself gives you. I tell you, it's been amazing to me today. The songs, Micah's words, I, I mean, they're, they're all pointing us to this hope of glory that he gives us. So let me read the verse again. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, him 
him we proclaim. So what is the hope of glory? I mean, track with me, guys. Don't, don't, don't give up. What is the hope of glory? It's not the hope that God will necessarily shield us from all harms or troubles or pain or grief. We all know anecdotally that is not true. Pat's still suffering with pain. The procedure didn't really take away her pain. She's going again this week. George has stomach cancer. And as, as uh, Micah mentioned, Audrey and her family are probably gathered right now together grieving the death of, of Brenda. And, and on and on and on it goes. You know, forgive me if I'm not mentioning your pain and suffering because I, I know there's others. If your motivation for following Jesus is that, that he's going to relieve you and shield you from harm and trouble and pain and grief, then I'm telling you, you're, you're going to fall away because, I mean, it's coming to all of us, pain and grief. Pain, grief, and joy, two lines that run parallel in our lives. So let the hope of glory be your motivation for following Jesus. So what is the hope of, what is this hope of glory? Well, I, I've written down three realities that is the hope of glory, but there's probably more. I don't, I don't pretend or purport that this is a, an exhaustive list, but I do have three things that I know the hope of glory includes. Here they are. The hope of glory is our resurrection. And I think, if anything, it's the first hope of glory that God is going to raise us from the dead. Regardless of what you think happens between the moment you die and the moment Jesus returns, regardless of what you think happens in that intermediate time, the hope of all the New Testament writers, and if you look for it, you'll see it. It's there. It's all throughout the pages of the New Testament. It's this. It's the resurrection from the dead. Here's the Apostle Paul. I want to know Jesus. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That was Paul's, Paul's, Paul's desire was seeking the resurrection from the dead. Jesus himself speaking, John chapter 5, For as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear the voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to condemnation. And that is exactly what you read in Malachi. Exactly. And that's Jesus speaking. This isn't just New Testament people, guys. This is Old Testament people as well. Their hope was the resurrection. Here's Isaiah 26, verse 19. But your dead will live. Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. You see, the, the hope of glory is our glorification. And it is that God is going to raise us from the dead and give us our lives back. He's going to restore us from the dead. Now, people belittle this hope of glory. I mean, they say it, just, it can't be proven to be true. And they're right about that. It can't be proven to be true. Death is death. And at the end of your life, you die, they say. Billions of years of evolution and billions of years of death prove it. We, by faith, disagree. 
We say that's not true. We hold to this promise. It is our confidence and our assurance that God is going to raise us from the dead. And I'll be the first to say, and I've never been ashamed of saying this, by faith I hold to that. By faith I hold to that. But listen, it's not faith that's absolutely devoid of evidence. We have some evidence for what we believe. And you say, what is that evidence? Well, that evidence is Jesus. Here's what the Apostle Paul said to the, to the Athenian uh, hierarchy, intellectual hierarchy, the philosophers of his day. He said, for he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this, to this, to everyone Here's the proof, by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we will hear you again on this subject. There are so many times, and I didn't have time, and I didn't list any others, but there's more there where the Bible points us to the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul, Peter's first message, Acts chapter 2, Christ is risen. He, you know, David's in the grave, Jesus is not. God did not allow his body to go, undergo decay. So there are a number of scriptures that point to that. But I still grant you, it's by faith that we hold to that. But don't be ashamed of that. Don't be afraid of that. Faith is the, and I'm always getting mixed up, but faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Maybe backwards. But anyway, it's okay by faith to hold to these things and be absolutely assured in what you believe. So here's the second, here's the second thing that the hope of glory means. It means renewal. It means that God's going to raise us from the dead, but he's also going to raise us renewed and renovated. And, uh, you know, to coin a modern phraseology, we're going to be version 2.0. In Revelation 21, God says, I'm making everything new, and that includes you and me. Making everything new. I know this is a long scripture, but humor me if you would. This is Paul in his letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 15. Listen to what he says. Just listen. Some of you have asked, how will the dead be raised to life? What kind of bodies will they have? Hey, when we get resurrected, what's it going to be like? Don't be foolish, Paul says. A seed must die before it can sprout from the ground. Weed seeds and all, seeds and all other seeds look different from the sprouts that come up. This is because God gives everything the kind of body he wants it to have. People, animals, birds, fish are each made of flesh, but none of them are alike. Everything in the heavens has a body, and so does everything on earth. But each one is very different from all the others. The sun isn't like the moon, the moon isn't like the stars, and each star is different. And here's his kind of conclusion. That's how it will be when our bodies are raised to life. These bodies will die. This one is going to die. But the bodies that are raised will live forever. These ugly and weak bodies will become beautiful and strong. As surely as there are physical bodies, there are spiritual bodies, and our physical bodies will be changed into spiritual bodies. The hope of glory is that God's renewing everything about us. And in the resurrection, it will all be made new. My dad died of dementia. He died, I don't, know, I don't know what he died of, but he died with dementia. Three years of it, getting worse progressively. At the resurrection, my dad will not have dementia anymore because God's renewing his body. He's fixing that which is broken and he's making it new. My granddaughter Charlie is here this morning and she was born with her perfectly imperfect hand. But in the resurrection, knowing she'll belong to Jesus, if you'll grant me that, she'll be raised with a perfectly perfect hand because God's renewing everything about us. 
Paul doesn't really answer what our bodies will be like, but he says they're going to be different and they're going to be new. Somebody asked me this question this week, and, uh, so, and you're here. And so listen, I got an answer for you this morning, I think. Somebody asked me this question about free will in the resurrection. If we have, if we have free will, can't, can't we still sin in, uh, in the resurrection? Can't we still sin in the kingdom of God to come? And I answered, I don't know. And it's a question I've thought about for a long, long time, not just this week. But I feel like the Lord gave me an answer. In my freedom today, because I believe I do have a free will, there are parameters to the freedoms that God has given me. Parameters like, uh, I'm free, but I'm not free to travel by the speed of thought, right? I can't think myself down to Uruguay, or I can't think myself anywhere I want to be, right? There's parameters to my freedom. I'm free, but I can't travel by thought. I'm free, but I can't become invisible. I'm free, but I, I can't fly. I'm free, but I can't see in the dark. There are parameters to uh, God, what he's put in my freedom, right? Maybe in the resurrection, listen, maybe in the resurrection, those parameters won't include limitations of travel by thought. What do they say about the universe? It's so big, right? You know, how, how long would it take us to get to our star traveling as fast as we, we don't want to go there, but I'm saying if we did want to go to our star, it would take us so many light years, etc., to get there. But what? What if we can travel by the speed of thought in the kingdom to come? You say, why would you say that? Well, Jesus seemed to travel by the speed of thought in his resurrection, right? He was here. He was there. Maybe that's going to be something for us. Maybe we won't have the limitations of travel by thought. And here's, here's my thing on freedom and sin. Maybe we'll be free, but our freedom will include the limitation of the inability to sin. And I'm telling you, maybe that doesn't light your fire, but boy, man, I, I felt like the Lord gave me something there that just really blessed me. I'm free. But he's going to give me limitations that are going to bless me or limitations that he chooses. And maybe one of those limitations is I'll be free, but not free to sin against him. And I'm good with that. I think I'm pretty cool with that. Y'all don't seem inspired, but I was super inspired by that. Okay. So the hope of glory, the hope of glory, that's your motivation, right? The resurrection and renewal. But here's the third part. And and, uh, by, by the hope of glory, I think... I'm using the word relationship. Relationship. And here's what I mean by that. We're going to see Jesus face to face. We're going to see him face to face. We're going to walk with him by sight. Today we walk by faith. Today the Bible says we look through a dark glass and and we can't see very good when we we look through the the glass. But there's coming a day when you won't look through a glass and, and you'll... You'll be able to see everything clearly, and the relationship between you and Jesus will be a face-to-face, personal, physical relationship like you are now. Jesus rebuked Thomas because he didn't walk by faith. Remember Thomas said, hey, I'm not going to believe unless I see, and Jesus, when he appeared to him, said, okay, I'm going to let you see, but blessed are all those people like Frank and Gail who are never going to see but are going to believe and trust in me. So, so there's coming a day, however, when he's changing that. And we won't be walking by faith. We'll, the hope of glory is I get to be in a relationship with Jesus and I get to, to see him with my eyes and I get to hear his voice with the eardrums and the ears that he's given me and I'm going to get to touch him. In Revelation chapter 20, 
uh, John sees God's heaven coming down to earth, and he hears this voice, and it says, John speaking, then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and they will be their God, he will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will all be no more, because the previous things have passed, have passed away. My own granddaughter, I can't keep her asleep, right? Keep a bunch of you asleep, but I can't keep my granddaughter asleep. God's going to live with us. God's going to live with us, everyone. And we're going to get to see him. And we're going to get to touch him. And we're going to get to hear his voice. I've told this story a couple of times, so forgive me for telling it again. But but it fits here, and I want to share it with you again. You know, when, when, when Shep died, I don't get to be in about a year or so after he had died, I was here at my office um, by myself, and I was just literally weeping. And I was crying because I was missing Shep. And I remember I told the Lord, I said, Lord, I said, I know I love you more than Shep, but you know who I really want to see today? I really want to see Shep. I remember God, you take this for whatever it's worth, okay? But God spoke to my heart. And this is what God said. He said, Jimmy, the reason you want to see Shep, not me, is because you're separated from Shep. Can't talk to him, can't see him, can't experience him. He's, he's dead, he's gone from you. But, but I'm not. And we've never been separated. And we, we've never been apart from each other. And that's the reason why you want to see your son so much. And he said, son, it's okay. It's okay you want to see Shep. And so I, I tell you what, that was, that was such a moment for me. When the resurrection comes, I'm looking forward to seeing Shep, but I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus face to face too. I'm looking forward to, I know he's with me, but I'm looking forward to touching him. I'm assuming he'll want to touch me, but I'm looking forward to hearing his voice with my ears and seeing his face with my eyes. I'm just looking so forward to that. Listen to Job. Remember Job in the Old Testament? I'm going to tell you this passage, man, this week, this passage just, I couldn't believe, I, how have I missed this? I mean, I, I knew the one little verse in it, but there's so much more to it. Listen to what Job says in Job 19, 23 and following. Job says, I wish that my words were written down, that they were recorded on a scroll or were inscribed in stone forever by an iron stylus and lead. He says, man, I really wish somebody would take notes of what I'm saying and write it on stone so it'll be there forever. And guess what? His words have been inscribed and they'll be there and they'll be there till Jesus comes again. But listen to what he goes on to say. I know that my Redeemer lives and at the end he will stand on the dust. Now that dust, the word dust is the earth. He will stand on the earth. Even after my skin has been destroyed, Yet I will see God, I'll see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. Man, do you see Job's hope of the resurrection? Do you see his hope like yours and mine of wanting to see Jesus? And he says, my heart longs within me to see my God. And he said, I'm convinced I will see him. I will see him. 
The Old Testament saints were just like us. They wanted to see with their own eyes God and walk with him forever. So our motivation, and I'm done now, our motivation is Jesus the person, and our motivation is the hope of glory. And that hope of glory may include more, but it is not less than the resurrection, the renewal, and the relationship that Jesus is going to give us, give us in the days to come. So let me say again clearly, with conviction, I don't believe that a motive of fear or transactionalism is a motive we should promote. I think it's insufficient. I think it's wrong. Anne asked me, well, Jimmy, can't we use fear? Or, or is fear a good motivation to get people heading in the right direction? I think God can use all kinds of things. And so I think he's used fear. Or I think the spirit of God, people who don't suppress the knowledge of God in their hearts, he uses, uh, he can use fear. But I want to say again, I, there's, that I can tell in the New Testament, in the, in the book of Acts and in the epistles, I, I just do not see, see the disciples walking away from Jesus and, and using fear and using transactionalism as a reason why they would say follow Jesus. In fact, I, I've already, I feel like defended at least at some level that what they used was the person of Jesus and the love of Christ is what compels us to follow him. So I, I think that's what they were using and the promise, the hope of, of glory. So I, I don't think those are good motives. So there you have it. The two motives that I believe Paul would give to us, the two motives that I think you and I should embrace is the person of Jesus and the promise that Jesus gives us of the hope of glory. So what does Jesus want us to do this morning in light of this, this message, this talk? So I've, I've, I've written down something. I think he wants you to examine your motives this morning. Why do you follow Jesus? What is your motive for following Jesus? Maybe, maybe I haven't even hit on it, but maybe it's not the two that I gave you. Jesus wants you in this category of motivation to examine your motives and to look at them. Let go of any inferior motive. If your motive today is fear, I'd encourage you to reject fear and choose Jesus as your motive. Jesus, the person, the God-man, choose him as your motive. Choose the promise of eternity with him as your motivation for following Jesus. I want you to put your hope in the things that God has promised us in the days to come. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.